You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Joining us now from Notre Dame, Indiana, Professor Bob Schmuel. Professor Bob Schmuel, good morning to you. Um, that good point, morning, Onya. That point Brendan Boyle was m- making there that, you know, a three-point lead, five to six million ahead on the popular vote, that that's nothing to sneeze at if it does come through uh, for Joe Biden. Um, but still, even if Biden gets the White House, would you say that this election shows that America is very much the disunited states? It is this uh, very disunited and we're on a knife's edge and I think we're cutting into both sides, uh, the Democratic side and the Republican side. The Washington Post today has a column and the headline on it is, if Biden wins, he'll inherit a mission impossible. And really, when you draw back and think about it, uh, it will be very difficult for Joe Biden should he uh, ultimately win the uh, presidency. What we're seeing is a situation where instead of partisanship in the United States, we have this new tribalism and the tribalism takes its uh, form in the polarization. And what this election shows is that we now have polarization on steroids. And while Joe Biden might talk about bringing the country together, Donald Trump is doing nothing to calm the waters. And my guess is this situation is going to continue for quite a period of time. And this is going to be, as you say, such a huge challenge for Joe Biden, who likely, if he wins, be in office, but not in power with Mitch McConnell for the Republicans controlling uh, the Senate. So there's four more years, isn't there, of the cultural civil war that we've seen in American politics? Uh, Indeed. Um, Onya, you might recall that not long ago, someone asked Donald Trump, if he would participate in a peaceful transfer of power. And he turned that question away, would not even uh, consider it or uh, try to uh, answer it. So that um, it is a time when uh, we are taking sides. um, And I think you get a measure of where we're going by some of the speculation already, which is that if Donald Trump would lose, uh, he might well come back in four years and run for the presidency again. Uh, That is not uh, something that happens very often in America. It did in the 19th century with Grover Cleveland, but We're looking at a long-term situation of rivalry between two camps, and I would even go so far as to say almost two armed camps. Are you nervous for what will happen? Yes, Um, for this reason that um, I think that uh, we have a situation that uh, uh, is quite flammable. and, and someone said that um, uh, Donald Trump, actually a Fox News person, said that he's throwing a match on, on all of this. So that uh, I, one has to say that he has a great deal of support, but one wonders where that support is going to lead. And if his people, if he himself would continue to whip up the enthusiasm on his behalf, 
it would make uh, the governance of the United States that much more difficult, if not impossible. Stay safe and thank you for talking to us this morning. Professor Bob Schmuel there from Notre Dame University. Austrian police are searching for at least one suspect after a multiple gun attack in the capital, Vienna, that left four people dead. Seven other people are said to have life-threatening injuries. Many people were out enjoying bars and restaurants before they closed at midnight because of new coronavirus restrictions. This eyewitness described what happened. There are noises that sound like firecrackers. We've heard about like 20 to 30, and we didn't expect that to be actually gunfire. We saw their policemen in the street next to our restaurant. We saw their ambulance, um, you know, lining up. There were victims. Uh, sadly, we also saw there's a body lying down the street next to us. Suddenly, the shooting started. First, we didn't know what it was. But suddenly, people who were sitting in other gas gardens started to run. First, we kept standing there because we didn't know what was going on. Then there was shooting again, but closer, so we started to run away. Because we did not know if we were running in the right direction, we ran into a hotel and hid there. Some eyewitnesses to last night's terror. The Austrian Chancellor Sebastian Kurz called the shootings a repulsive terrorist attack. Dear Austrians, we are living in a very difficult time. We're victims of a contemptible terrorist attack in our capital city. The police have successfully dealt with one of the perpetrators, but a number of others are on the run. Joining us now on the line is Vienna-based journalist Kerry Skyring. Kerry, thank you for talking to us. What's now known about what happened last night? It was a busy night in the inner city. Tourists to Vienna will remember those small streets around the cathedral and Schwedenplatz, uh, places like that. And last night was the last opportunity for Viennese to go out before a curfew, which began at midnight last night, so a lot of people out. The shooting apparently began near the synagogue, the main synagogue in the inner city, and uh, police say in total six uh, locations in the inner city uh, experienced a shooting or some sort of attack. And at the moment, 17 people are in hospital, eight of those critical, four people were killed, uh, and then a fifth was one of the assailants. And is it known at this stage, Kerry, how many people were involved in this attack? It is not. Um, all that we know for certain is that uh, one person, the person killed by police, uh, was involved. They say others, uh, they won't rule out that others were also involved. But we've not had any details of that. Other people have been arrested. Uh, an apartment has been forcibly entered and searched. We know all this. But we really have no evidence, hard evidence, of the other people involved, except that uh, there is certainly a major police operation going on across and beyond the city. Mm, So were people still being asked then to stay at home, not to go out? Yes, uh, that appeal came again early this morning. There was one last night. The Interior Minister again this morning urged people to stay away from the inner city. Uh, Schools will remain closed today. 
And yes, people are being told to be very careful. Soldiers are on guard instead of police at the uh, the major sites uh, and international institutions around the city. Um, there are controls at the borders, so quite a lot of tension and certainly evidence of a major operation underway. The Interior Minister, I see, has described the assailant killed by the police as an Islamist terrorist. Is anything else known about the dead man? We haven't been given any details of his uh, his origins, except that he has links, or it is claimed that he has links to the Islamic State group, and that he, they know his location and identity, and they have searched uh, the apartment. They actually exploded the door and uh, entered the apartment uh, quite uh, sh- soon after the shootings last night. So uh, apparently this person is known to police. Kerry, thank you very much for taking our call. Vienna-based journalist Kerry Skyring there. <laughs> Now, Tánish Thilly over Radker found himself at the centre of a political storm over the weekend when Village magazine revealed he'd disclosed a confidential draft GP agreement negotiated with the IMO to a rival organisation. He couriered the document to the home of NAGP head Dr Matthew O'Toole. Mr Varadkar in a statement has acknowledged his informal communication channel was not best practice. He denies breaking any laws. He is expected to make a statement in the Dáil tomorrow and answer questions. For more, I'm joined by our political correspondent Paul Cunningham. Paul, good morning. How much trouble, Paul, and what trouble exactly is the Tánish they in? Well, clearly he's had a difficult couple of days. I think today is going to be no different. And an awful lot rests on this statement that he's going to give to the Doyle. And then there will be time for deputies to ask him questions and he will have to provide answers. He has an opposition which is fairly delighted that what he did was wrong. He shared a document um, which he shouldn't have shared. And on that basis, they will be gunning for him effectively. They will be asking what sanctions are going to apply to someone who leaked a document um, to a third party which goes against, say, the Cabinet um, rule book. Um, he's also got difficulties insofar as that there's concern among his coalition partners, um, both in Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, or sorry, the Green Party, about what has taken place. And then he has to try and project beyond that out into the wider public with people who will be looking at a Thánishta who had a reputation for straight talking. But now there's questions about just how he does business. So it's going to be a difficult day tomorrow. Mm. He has to appeal to multiple audiences and he needs to put in one hell of a performance. Now we haven't heard from the IMO yet uh, which was a party to these negotiations. We have had a statement uh, from Dr O'Toole but I think it might be instructive to go through timelines here. Um, When the draft agreement was agreed to Mr Varadkar Currying it, uh, couriering it to Mr Dr O'Toole to when exactly this document was made public? Yeah, I mean, basically this was all happening last year and it's important to say that at the time Leo Varadkar was Taoiseach, it was the last government so the Fianna Fáil and Green parties weren't involved. This was a completely different administration. Um, a deal was concluded between the government and the IMO and at the beginning of April of last year that um, agreement was announced. There were also several statements put out by the IMO and um, an overview, an overview of what was contained in the document was released. Then sometime between the 11th and the 16th of April 
April and the Taoiseach, as you said, had um, given this um, draft document, which had yet to be passed by the membership of the IMO to the IMO's rival group, the NAGP. It's important to say that the NAGP no longer exists. Um, then you have to fast forward until Saturday, uh, until Friday when Village Magazine revealed that that document had gone from Leo Varadkar to the NAGP and questions were raised about the probity of such a decision given that it hadn't been published. So we have something of a gap. We have a flurry of activity over three um, weeks and then there is nothing until this um, was revealed by Village Magazine. So in the first instance here, has he had now, uh, has he met the, the Taoiseach yet? Uh, the Taoiseach has not made uh, a statement so far. Uh, is there pressure on Michal Martin to act? Well, we know that there was um, communication between Mr. Varadkar and the two other coalition leaders on Saturday. Um, as I understand it, there was no contact between Mr. Varadkar and Mr. Martin um, t- uh, yesterday. Um, but uh, Michal Martin will be under pressure to give his reaction as to where things stand. I think what we can basically take from um, the past two days is that Mr. Martin is going to afford the Thornish to an opportunity to go into the door, to explain himself, to make his case, and, the, and judgment will be arrived at following on. From that, that's why I think it's so important to hear what Varadkar and um, Mr. Varadkar has to say about this, and it's on the basis of that that his coalition partners will be making um, judgments. I mean, I think it was noteworthy that the um, Green Junior Minister Oshin Smith was asking rather pointed questions yesterday about um, saying that Mr. Varadkar faced ethical questions and whether or not the NAGP had been conferred an unfair advantage by receiving this document, um, which was in draft form and not finalised. So that's a, a rather sort of um, salty way of putting things and just shows the degree of pressure that Mr Varadkar is under. And just in terms of what happens in the Dáil tomorrow, he'll make a statement, he'll take questions, but will he talk down the clock? Will he answer questions uh, while the questions keep coming? Well, I think that um, there's going to be an obligation on him, a political obligation, to deal with this crisis head on. I mean, we heard from heavyweights like Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue that, you know, the Taunista only shared the IMO contract after negotiations had been concluded, after a press conference, after the government had agreed to the deal, that the detail had broadly been reported and that he, Mr Varadkar, um, had been working with uh, the Finance Minister for three years on countless negotiations and at all times he'd been guided by trying to do the right thing. So you get a sense of the type of message that Mr Varadkar is going to have and what he's going to try and do, which is to say, um, you know, this wasn't best practice, but the overall motivation was to do something that people had wanted for decades, which was to upgrade the um, uh, GP contract and get it over the line. That was what he did, and that was in some ways a success. But I think from unless he's able to answer the other questions which are coming in thick and fast from um, Sinn Féin, Labour Party, Social Democrats, he's going to be on sticky ground because it is also clear that backbenchers in both the Fianna Fáil and Green parties are uncomfortable with this and Mr Varadkar there has to do something to assuage that concern. Paul, thank you very much. Petula was talking to Ryanair's Chief Financial Officer earlier with their passenger numbers down 80%. They're reporting losses today of just under €200 million for the first half of the financial year. But they're warning that they expect that to get worse. Simon Calder is travel writer with the UK Independent. Morning again, Simon. It's not as bad as perhaps they expected. Would that be fair? Well, compared with pretty much every other large airline in Europe, Ryanair is doing spectacularly well. So its losses in the half year from the beginning of April, when all but a skeleton service of flights have been uh, closed down, uh, through to the end of September, 
Uh, they lost, what, 1.1 million euro a day. That compares with, well, if, if you look at uh, EasyJet, the biggest budget airline in the UK, um, about five, maybe five and a half million euro per day. And IAG, which owns Aer Lingus, as well as British Airways and Iberia of Spain, uh, up to 20 million euro a day. So Ryanair has done actually pretty well. Yes, things are going to get worse during the winter, but effectively, uh, the airline is dealing with that by kind of grounding more than expected of its uh, uh, planned scheduled flights and well i'm afraid all this uh, well afraid uh, it, it appears to be absolutely the case that uh, we will see in um, the years ahead ryanair becoming even more dominant as uh, europe's biggest uh, uh, budget airline and quite possibly the biggest airline in europe Simon, they have my money. I'm sure I'm not alone. Is that reflected in their big cash reserves at the moment? Oh, oh, oh sure, yes. I mean, that they uh, uh, are still not able to refund everybody who uh, was booked to travel, particularly in um, April, May, June, uh, when, when tens of millions of, of passengers had their flights cancelled. The airline says that uh, the main problem is with like, online travel agents and that they have been effectively obstructing Ryanair's ability to give back either money or vouchers to travellers. Um, here in the UK, there's um, still, I think it's fair to say, a fair amount of unhappiness about refunds, but more so about the lockdown that the UK is, uh, sorry, forgive me, England is going into from this coming Thursday, the 5th of November. Uh, Michael O'Leary, chief executive of Ryanair, has already told the British media, um, you are not going to be able to get any uh, cash refunds if your flight goes ahead during those four weeks. Um, you can, however, um, change to a different flight. But a uh, great deal of un unhappiness um, in the UK about that. Can but, you continue well, to do this, Simon? Uh, oh, sure. I mean, that, that they, um, you know, Ryanair has um, uh, famously not, not uh, <laughs> uh, followed the pattern that other airlines are doing. So typically, uh, uh, British Airways will offer people vouchers if they don't want to travel due to government restrictions. Um, the EasyJet is, is simply grounding most of its UK uh, flights for the uh, four-week spell. Um, but Ryanair carries on, as does Wizz Air, which is increasingly seen as the kind of Eastern European um, version of Ryanair. Uh, they, they, are, they are being uncompromising. They're, they say they're sticking to the law and that if the flight goes and you're not on it, well, that's your problem and not the Yes, um, very unpopular, but um, uh, perhaps more so with um, affected passengers than with investors who will continue to see Ryanair as, um, well, the, 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 the golden airline in Europe. And uh, as we've seen with previous crises, um, things get appallingly bad for everybody, but then somehow Ryanair rises above everyone else and, um, and, and goes on to uh, get an even bigger share of the market. Crystal ball question, short answer if you can. When do you expect it will be able to return to flying as normal? Well, look, um, I, I, I've always been over-optimistic about this. Um, I think everyone is looking at spring. Basically, everyone, oh. travellers and airlines, have written off the entire winter. If uh, numbers subside, if a vaccine is found, then from Easter onwards uh, i think we will see not a normal summer but we will see maybe recovery to half where we were in 2019 and i think most people would see that as a good result 
Simon, thanks for speaking to us. That's Simon Calder, travel writer with the UK Independent. Covid restrictions in the north are due to be eased in less than two weeks' time. In the south, however, level five restrictions are due to continue until the start of next month. This is likely to mean that on one side of the border, it will be possible to go to a restaurant or a pub, while on the other side, pretty much everything will remain closed. For more, let's talk to our northern correspondent, Vincent Kearney. Vincent, are there signs that the situation in Northern Ireland is improving? There have been some signs recently that things are improving in terms of case numbers falling, but consistently the position in Northern Ireland has been much worse than south of the border. In fact, much worse than many other parts of the of the UK as well over a period of weeks. And when you hear the figures from Northern Ireland, it's important to bear in mind the difference in population. The Republic of population about 5.9 million, Northern Ireland 1.9 million. So when you hear these figures every night, what you have to do is roughly multiply the Northern Ireland figures by two and a half to get a sense uh, of what that means south of the border. So yesterday, for example, we, we had two deaths reported in the Republic. There were eight deaths reported in Northern Ireland. That's equivalent to around 20 south of the border. Um, in the Republic yesterday, 767 uh, new cases. In Northern Ireland, there were 493 new cases. That sounds lower, but when you add that multiplier, that's equivalent to around 1,300 new cases in one day south of the border. But some of the actual numbers are higher as well. Currently, uh, south of the border, 322 confirmed coronavirus patients in hospital. In Northern Ireland, there are currently 379 patients. Uh, In the Republic of Ireland, ICU for COVID patients, 44 people. In Northern Ireland, ICU, 52 people. So even without that multiplier effect, some of the actual figures are still higher and substantially higher as well. Now, as I say, there there have been signs that case numbers are starting to fall back, but still 493. That's that's higher than at any point um, since April. So there there has been concern that the numbers have been very high, and that they are while they are falling, the health authorities and politicians are concerned they aren't falling enough. Mm-hmm. And the chief medical officer in particular has expressed concern about the loosening of some restrictions in a couple of weeks' time. That's right. Uh, Dr. Michael McBray and McBride entered the fray yesterday because on the 13th of November, um, tougher restrictions here are due to be lifted. Uh, now, he has said it would be simply impossible to stem the spread of COVID-19 if the hospitality sector, pubs and restaurants open and schools remain open as well. Our schools here reopened um, yesterday after an extended two-week Halloween break. Now, those tougher restrictions, I say, which included pubs, restaurants and cafes only been allowed to open for takeaway services are due to end on the 13th of November. She said, Rachel, that's just over two weeks before level five restrictions in the Republic are scheduled to end. So there will be a disparity. Pubs and restaurants would remain closed south of the border while those in Northern Ireland would open. We heard Fergal Barr say earlier there is concern mm. about what that could mean. Could we see large numbers of people, for example, in border areas like Donegal travelling across the border into Derry uh, to go to pubs and restaurants? And Megan McBride has flagged that up. He said the Stormed Executive is facing very difficult choices. Um, He said it simply won't be possible to keep that R rate, the estimated number of how many people an infected person passes the virus on to below one if both the hospitality sector and schools remain fully open. He said Stormont faces very difficult choices. He said it may have to look at alternative choices. Now, it's interesting to hear because the the First Minister and DUP leader Arlene Foster has, has made it clear she's very wedded to that date of the 13th of November. She has said as far as she's concerned the restrictions will definitely end on that date. 
Deputy First Minister, Sinn Féin's Michelle O'Neill, much more cautious. She said she believes the restrictions should be reviewed on that date. So two very different approaches. And certainly yesterday, in a radio interview, the Chief Medical Officer, Dr Michael McBride, seemed to err on the side of caution and certainly put a question mark over that plan to lift restrictions on the 13th of November. And one of the key factors is a concern about the disparity in North and South and what that might mean. Vincent, thanks a million for joining us this morning. Our Northern correspondent, Vincent Kearney. We're going to talk this morning to Jonathan Quinn. Jonathan, good morning. Good morning, Mary. How's things? You have put a smile on many faces this weekend with your Halloween costume. Tell us what you did. Oh, yeah. Well, I was in the pound shop. I was, I was kind of just with my feet. Luckily, I changed my mind. Now, I'll say this, and you can tell us the rest. Uh, your friends all tell you you're the head of Luke Kelly, so that was the starting point. <laughs> yeah, it started when the statue went up. You all give me a bit of sticks, and of a head like Luke Kelly, because of a big gap around my head. <laughs> so I was in the pound shop and seeing orange hairs, and I said, you know what, I'll give it a go. And <laughs> that's how it happened. Now, I'm looking at the photograph in today's Irish Independent and Conor Feehan's story, and there you are, uh, sitting beside Luke's statue, <laughs> uh, uh, on Sheriff Street, uh, and and this is uh, and Luke's statue has had its problems. The sculpture has had its problems over the last few years being defaced. But there you are. Did you really get a, a, a round of applause from Ten Gardy in the area? Yeah, there was about there was about seven or eight of them there. And when we were walking over, the the they seen me, my girlfriend, and my sister going up to take a picture. And one of them turned around and started laughing, and then the rest of them started laughing. And then when we took the picture, we were walking back, and then they started clapping, just laughing as well. So it was nice. So how, how long did this go on? You you positioned yourself uh, beside Luke, uh, and then did you did did you just kind of set out to scare people, or what were you at? <laughs> no, I, I I said I just done the the costume just as a quick joke, just to have a laugh in the house, and then we said we'd go over and get a picture on the other side, and we went over, we went down and got a picture, and just came back really. It was just just for a photo of the side, just to see what it was. It looks it it, it looks the biz, and you have a, a head of red hair. Hello, Jonathan, are you gone? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I'm still here. Still um, here. I'm, I'm just looking at you, you the, 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 the red hair, uh, all your own. No, the, the red, the colour is not mine, but the hair is mine. <laughs> so did you, just, you, you, you did a, a, a dye job for the occasion, did you? <laughs> it's on chairs by out of pound job, just a quick, quick two minute job. Great stuff. Well, it looks it looks the biz. It's in the Irish Independent. We've tweeted uh, a, a picture of you as well. People can see it on our Morning Ireland uh, Twitter feed. Uh, Jonathan, thank you very much indeed for joining us. That's Jonathan no Quinn. And we're glad you did as well. There's been an increased demand for mental health services from those living on the streets. That's according to one of Ireland's homeless and addiction charities, Merchants Key Ireland. In their annual report, they say there was an 11% increase in people seeking help for mental health issues last year. This year, they say, is even worse. Our social affairs correspondent, Ava Keneally, reports. It's eight o'clock in the morning and despite level five restrictions, it's busy on the streets of Dublin. Sharon, who's homeless, has set up in her usual spot near Bagot Street with a book. When COVID started, when the first lockdown came in, my friend got me back reading and now I can't put a book down. Every couple of days I'm reading a different book like so. 
it's good, it keeps me mind, you know what I mean? Keeps me mind going all day long. Despite that, she yearns for something very small, an acknowledgement that she exists. If you just stop and say hello, that means an awful lot more to me than that. And to be honest, just to say, say how are you doing? How's your day? Do you know what I mean? Just acknowledge you, like, do you know that kind of way? Not just to walk by you, like, do you know what I mean? I'm someone's daughter, I'm someone's mother. You know that way? Just stop and ask, are you all right? That's all. Do you know that way? Just let them know that you know that they like, we people do. Sharon says she's noted that her mental health has been impacted in the last year, particularly since yeah, COVID is. arrived. I've, I've actually copped it in half lot. Mine is going to be down since this. The last month has been very testing. Her partner died four weeks ago and there is no grieving process when you're on the streets. I went to sleep and when I woke up then he was dead at half seven. We got an ambulance and I'll try to resuscitate him. Didn't happen so it's the same, everything just... I get through one thing and then something else comes and hits me, bang, you know, that way, so... Do you know what I mean? There's no way for me to sit down and just breathe for Philip, do you know that way, so... Further up the road, we meet Aaron. Like Sharon, he recognises the mental health challenges that the pandemic is having on people who are homeless. Yeah, big difference, yeah, of course, yeah. You can kind of, you always try to keep positive, obviously, because if you let yourself get too down, you're obviously going to end up in a bad place, but this has made it a lot harder to be able to do that, so... And then an interruption from a child scooting oh, past on his yeah, way to yeah. school. Like it was hard as it was, like, but now it's even worse. Hello, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he always says hello to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's a welcome start to a long day before Aaron returns to his tent at night. Every night I stay in a tent. That's not the best either, obviously, of course, being in a tent, but I still find it safer than being in a hostel, to be honest, though. Aaron and Sharon are amongst the rough sleepers who are checked in on by Merchants Key Ireland each morning. Amy Carroll is an outreach worker with MQI. You know, the trauma that's attached to homelessness as it is, and then you throw in a pandemic on top of that, we have to provide a service, so therefore we have to move out to where clients are. We're able to refer them on to our mental health team or our psychiatric nurse. Of course, they're out the door with referrals as well. The CEO of Merchants Key Ireland, Paula Byrne, says while mental health policy in the programme for government is welcome, the voices of those reliant on homeless and addiction services on the ground need to be heard. It is an investment in more nurses, but also the technology to allow us to link our clients in with statutory mental health services as well, I think. In the meantime, those running businesses in the Bagot Street area of Dublin have been trying to help Aaron and Sharon during the latest restrictions, and it's something for which both are grateful. There's a coffee shop up there that let me leave my bag in the back with clothes, and only for them I'd be screwed as well. I probably wouldn't have got through the lock, first lockdown only for the people around here and the businesses, the people that own the businesses around here. They're very good to me, like I'd be lost without them. Like They're all very, very good to me. Sharon ending that report from Alva Keneally and that point she made about uh, the importance of people simply stopping and saying hello sometimes rather than walking by someone on the streets when they're invisible is one that Peter McVeary I know has uh, said over and over again. Simply saying hello can make a big difference. Tributes have been paid to one of the most accomplished and decorated foreign correspondents of modern times, Robert Fisk, who has died at the age of 74. British-born, an Irish citizen with a home in Dalkey in County Dublin, he covered conflict here and in the Middle East in a career spanning five decades. 
President Michael D. Higgins said that the world of journalism and informed commentary on the Middle East had lost one of its finest commentators, that generations had relied on Robert Fisk for a critical and informed view of what was taking place in conflict zones of the world, and he said his Irish citizenship had meant a great deal to him. Here's Robert Fisk on RTE's conversations with Eamon Dunphy in 2008, reflecting on the difficult and solitary life of a foreign correspondent. I was 59 and I looked across the sea and said, was this really the right life? All this blood and tragedy and and uselessness. Um, you know, when I could have had a much happier life. Much happier, personally. And because um, you can't wind the movie back and start again like you can with Foreign <laughs> Correspondent by Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> and I remembered the letter which my then long-dead foreign editor, Louis Heron, sent me when I was covering the aftermath of the Portuguese Revolution. He was offering me the Middle East as a job. I felt a bit like King Faisal of Iraq. <laughs> Would you like Iraq? <laughs> and um, he said in the letter, it'll be a great adventure and lots of sun. <laughs> he was right about the last bit anyway. And... Um, I said yes, of course, immediately. I was 29 years old on the Times of London. And I looked back and said, if I knew what I was going to go through, I'd still say yes. The late Robert Fisk. Patrick Coburn is a long-time friend of his and currently a columnist with the UK Independent, focusing on Iraq, Syria and wars in the Middle East. Patrick, good morning. Thanks for taking our call. Good morning. Um, poor Bob. He'll be hugely missed. You knew him very well. Yes, he was my best friend, uh, and I was very shocked when this happened. I, you know, I was in constant touch with him. We basically uh, touched base, talked on the phone uh, once a week or uh, over the last ten, fifteen years. Um, but I knew him first from uh, Belfast in the early nineteen seventies. Uh, he'd arrived as a correspondent for the London Times. I was doing my uh, PhD at uh, Queen, Queen's University. Uh, coincidentally, the head of the institute where I was was also Bob's uh, landlord. So I knew him from that, <coughs> excuse me, from that period uh, onwards. And, um, uh, you know, we, we had uh, rather parallel careers. He was a wonderful journalist, you know. He had an acute sense of justice, uh, of right and wrong. He had continual skepticism uh, about what government said or anybody in authority said, but he tested that with uh, extraordinarily good reporting. You know, I remember in the, the, the 1990s, I was correspondent in Jerusalem. The Israelis were intermittently bombing southern Lebanon. Nobody in the world paid much attention to this. The Israelis always said it was uh, military facilities. But Robert would you know, always go down to where was, it was being bombed, the village that was being bombed, and find, you know, what had really happened, which was usually that civilians had been uh, uh, killed, that there were dead and wounded uh, men, women and children around. And uh, I know the Israelis, after a bit, you know, this this really did confine uh, what they were bombing in southern Lebanon. Nobody else was uh, doing that. I mean, that's one tiny cameo of a thousand other things he did uh, during his career. How will you best remember him? I think just as a, you know, as a wonderful person and exactly the sort of person the world needs, you know, of somebody who actually sort of finds out the truth about important matters. You know, we live in the age of Trump, of Boris Johnson, of all these other uh, calamities, you know, uh, around the world. That's exactly what the world has needs and what the world has lost. 
Patrick, I'd love to spend longer talking to you about this. Uh, thank you very much for speaking to us this morning. That's Patrick Coburn, long-term friend of the late Robert Fisk. Now, the start of the annual pheasant shooting season, which was due to begin yesterday, has been delayed under Level 5 restrictions after Garthi announced that recreational hunting does not fall under exemptions allowed for exercise. The National Association of Regional Game Councils has said the announcement was devastating for hunting men and women. Dan Curley is the chairperson of the National Association of Regional Game Councils. He's on the line. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Mary. Now, yesterday is a big day for people who love to hunt. What would you have been doing yesterday under normal circumstances? Yes, under normal circumstances, our, our people, our, our members would be up at uh, daybreak to go out at the pheasants. It is the equivalent of, of an All-Ireland day for Gaelic footballers, aren't it? It is the biggest day of the year. It's a psychological day as well. It's just that and people, you know, down the years have taken off work and people may, would not have missed the 1st of November maybe for 40 or 50 years. And obviously the 1st of November could be any day of the week. This year it happens to be a Sunday, but it could be any day. But it is that traditional thing, and it's that important to our members. Mm. But, Dan, we we don't live in normal times, and um, circumstances have changed for, for so many different organisations as to what they can and can't engage in. And really, I suppose your your organisation, your members are no different, and this time you couldn't gather to hunt. Exactly, Mary, and we were very conscious of that when we, uh, when the direction came out on on uh, the twentieth or the nineteenth of October that we're going to level five. We looked at the regulations, and uh, we, we felt that our the activity we're at is very very safe because we're basically people on our own going across isolated fields. So, uh, and. Uh, we sought uh, guidance from the government at the time on it, from NEFET, but w- w- they never came back to us. So then we issued a statement to our members on the 20th of, uh, no- of October, along them lines, that you go on your own. Uh, we cancelled a number of other activities. There would be always fringe activities in the evening time, mainly after the, the 1st of November. We cancelled all that. We cancelled any kind of meetings. So we thought we were more than complying with everything that was required under, under the Level 5, you know, and... and uh, uh, we obviously were very disappointed then that, that the Gardaí came three days before the season with a WhatsApp message telling us we couldn't do it. You know, even though they, they hadn't come for the previous 10 days telling us that, even though shoot, shooting of other species mm-hmm. was also in season at that time, you know. So we're very disappointed with that. And what about the birds now? Because um, your members would, would be involved in, in breeding programmes, wouldn't they, in preparation for, for the opening of the season? Correct, yes, and, and uh, we, we, so, some birds would have been already let out, and then they may have other birds in the pen, and there is, there is problems around that, trying to keep the birds right and feeding them and make sure that the, the birds are, are looked after properly, you know, so it, it, it does throw up all sorts of scenarios like that as well, and, and uh, I suppose what, what we were saying to anyone is, I could take my two dogs here this morning and, and walk in any field with permission from the farmer, obviously, you know, within five kilometres. Yeah. Now, the difference here is we bring a gun with us. So, I mean, it's very hard to understand the thinking or the rationale why they did this, you know. And uh, it's just as late as last week the government issued uh, uh, living with COVID and keeping well. And, you know, the, the, have things like that keep active. Keeping active and being outdoors, even during the winter. Is but are you arguing, Dan, that, that hunters go out alone? There, there's, there's driven hunts or driven shoots, uh, as well as what you call rough shooting. So you will have groups going out, won't you? 
in that scenario, yeah, the driven shooting. But would we had issued that advice that none of that was to take place this year? Now, our, our association is a parish-based. We are gun clubs. We, we have a thousand clubs around the country. There's a club in every parish, practically. And uh, our members are called rough shooters. So that's the, the lone man going on his own around the fields. Uh, we wouldn't have much to do with driven shooting. And, and we frowned on hands of that. And, and, and our, the, the line we took this year would have discriminated against our urban members because we said we told them they couldn't come this year. You had to be within the five kilometres. We thought it was very... You know, we thought we had fully complied with it, and it was really a bombshell that was dropped on, on, on the Thursday before but, that but last Dan, what, whatever about your members and not being able to go out yesterday, isn't this a good day for the pheasant? They get to live another day and another day and another week. Well, well correct, yes, yes. But, uh, I mean, this, this is a traditional day for us. It's, you know, it's, it's getting the members out, and, and according to the government's campaign last week, that's what they want to do. And it, and it is going out and relaxing in the country, and... For instance, but you can you can still go out, Dan. You can still go out. You can still walk the fields with your dogs. Uh, you can go out alone, as you say. You just can't bring your gun and shoot the pheasant. But but this is our this is our sport. This is what men live for. They're training the dogs for it. You know, it's it's uh, it's it's our tradition. It's our way of doing it. You know, and and uh, like the, the, the Gardaí do have questions to answer here. I mean, the, the season was opened from the first of September, so there was ten days where people could be shooting ducks or or deer or or the. the the, the game that's permissible during the, before the 1st of November, and there was no word from them about that. You know, if this was their plan, why didn't they come on the 20th and say, hold on, fellas, you can't go out, you know? It's, uh, it, 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 it is badly handled by the Gardaí. I know, but I suppose stage five did kick in at that stage. Dan, we must leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. That's Dan Curley from the National Association of Regional Game Councils. <laughs> And we're going to give the parting word now uh, to a rather sleep-deprived, I imagine, correspondent, uh, Richard Downs. And Richard, uh, this thought, Joe Biden, whether he wins the presidency later today or not, or could declare or not, uh, he won the most votes of any presidential candidate in US history. But he beat the man, if he does, who won the second most votes of any candidate in US history. So what that says about this divided America, Richard? Yes, indeed. Joe Biden getting 73.7 million people voting for him. That's uh, 50.5% of the electorate that voted. And Donald Trump getting 47.7% of the population. That's 69.6 million people. I suppose it tells us that America is divided and there isn't really much in common between the two sides. But the Trump era, you'd have to say, the last four years has really exacerbated all that. And it depends, crucially, on what Trump does in the next few days, but probably also also in the next few months and maybe even the next couple of years. If he bows out gracefully, uh, there may be a chance of healing, but I suppose his past doesn't augur well for that. One thought um, that's been occurring to me this morning is to do with the whole constitutional problem. You know, after Hillary Clinton lost having won more votes than Donald Trump in 2016, um, there was a lot of head scratching on the part of constitutional people saying, look, this proves that the the system in America is broken. I think that's been put to bed a little bit, a sense that the whole electoral college system, which is really arcane, really ancient, that it was out of step with modern America. But I think this uh, really puts that to bed for the moment anyway. It's back to business 
business as usual. The majority of voters look like, and we have to emphasise not all over yet, look like it'll be well reflected in the actual outcome as expressed in the Electoral College. And we're looking uh, towards the court cases over the next few days and the noise and the controversy that there will be about that and what Donald Trump says about it. And then probably to some sort of transition. And I was thinking about the other transition that's happened for a one-term president um, in recent memory. And that was, I think, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, George W. Bush's father, who lost to Bill Clinton. And the note he left in the in the desk in the White House, uh, apparently it's a tradition that American presidents always leave a note. And he left that note in the desk in the White House. And he, he said in, in the note to Bill Clinton, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, that he wished him well um, in his presidency. And he wrote that your success will be America's success. And it was a note which gave uh, Bill Clinton apparently um, great heart and he found it a very profound moment when he was taking over the presidency. I think it's hard to imagine that Donald Trump will write that type of note. Richard Downs in Washington. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.